0: welcome to today's edition of How on Earth. It is Tuesday, June sixteenth, 2016, and I'm your host, Kendra Kruger. And I'm Shelley Schlender. Coming up on
1: today's show, we'll talk with author Eric Tonsmeyer about his new book, The Carbon Farming Solution, and how to turn agriculture from an environmental negative to a positive. Also, we're joined by National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration scientist Chris Elvich, who would tell us about light pollution and its effect on our ability to enjoy the night sky.
0: But first, a few announcements in the science event calendar for the week. Looking for something to do on
1: Friday night? Get sucked into a black hole? Or maybe just watch a movie about them at Fisk Planetarium. Black Holes, The Other Side of Infinity is a movie that explores the power and grace of these cosmic beasts. CU's own Dr. Andrew Hamilton was the science advisor for the program. Check it out at Fisk Auditorium at 7.30 this
0: Friday. On Saturday, the CU Wizards will be performing their magic for kids and adults in their Liquid Crystal Wizard Show. These wizards of physics and chemistry will demystify the strange world of light and crystals. The show runs Saturday, 9.30 a.m. to 10.30 in the Duane Physics Building on CU Boulder campus. Find out more at colorado.edu slash cuwizards.
1: And mark your calendar for Science on Tap with the Denver Museum of Science on July 13th. Mingle with young professionals and the museum's dinosaur curator as he talks about the paleo history of Denver. Get tickets and more information on the Denver Museum of Science website, dmns.org.
0: If you know of any other upcoming science events you'd like us to consider for our calendar, contact us through our website, howonearthradio.org. are listening to how on earth the KGNU science show. I'm Kendra Kruger. Carbon sequestration is the act of removing carbon from the atmosphere and putting it somewhere else. Where that somewhere is and how it gets there is a complicated scientific problem. However, author Eric Tonsmeyer has crunched the numbers and shares his research in the book, The Carbon Farming Solution. It is a global toolkit of perennial crops and regenerative agriculture that argues a shift in global farming practices could effectively sequester hundreds of billions of metric tons of carbon from the atmosphere. We started off our conversation talking about what it actually means to sequester carbon with
2: plants sort of like I I ask people to try and remember back vaguely to high school biology when we learned about photosynthesis. And that's the thing where plants uh, use sunlight and water um, uh, and carbon dioxide to make sugars. And from those sugars, they make all these other compounds um, like, you know, cellulose and things like that. But the key piece there is that they take, Carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is what we have too much of, is one of the prime causes of of climate change. This excess carbon dioxide, they take that carbon dioxide and they um, they uh, break off the carbon and use it to make compounds. Um, again, things like cellulose or lignins, other or sugars, um, and uh, within an hour, that some of that carbon. 10 to 14% of those sugars are exuded by the roots of the plants and go right away into the soil to feed different kinds of microorganisms in the soil. So some of it gets into the soil right away. Um, some of it stays in the, in the, in the tissue of the plant. And if it's a perennial plant, like a tree or a perennial grass, then then it'll stay there as long as that lives. So like at where you are, uh, a pine tree or something um Going to live a long time, and as long as that pine tree is alive, the carbon is going to stay present in that tree. So it's sort of a win-win solution.
0: Yeah, and that's this, this two-way street. That it, we have the potential to harvest a lot of that carbon in the landmass, but additionally, you know, where by removing, uh, you know, burning things and and and. doing deforestation we're putting we're releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere right so yes Yes. yeah and 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 i really like also in in the book how you acknowledge the fact that these problems and their solutions are complex there's not like a a real simple solution but if we look at all Mm -hmm. the information out there there's there are ways that we can move forward in productive ways and I, like, for example, I like how you talk about emissions as one of the the largest contributors uh, in agriculture through transportation. And a lot of people are getting now into this local food movement. And local is good, but only if it's done right. Will you tell us more about how, what the differences could be in for transportation in, in local food systems?
2: Sure. That, the thing that I was really interested to look at... Um, well, first of all, I'll back up for a minute and say, yeah, all of these things are like a few steps forward and a few steps back. Well, you can plant nitrogen-fixing plants, and they will increase, um, increase uh, the rate of photosynthesis and the rate of biomass production, which is awesome. But then they also give off some nitrous oxide gas. And you can use cows to do some really cool things, but they also give off methane. So all these things have their little pros and cons. So transport was the area where I really wanted to look very deeply because you hear such really contrasting claims. You hear the local food movement saying we're the best thing for the climate and food miles are terrible. And you hear some sort of scientists and conservatives saying, well, local food is actually much worse than going to the supermarket. And I thought, well, how could all these these things can't all be true? And my goal with the book is to teach the controversy where controversy exists. And this was a clear, if this say, industrial produce is moving a greater distance and maybe doing it more efficiently. And we see that in a lot of studies, food in the supermarket actually has less of a carbon footprint than, um, than uh, driving out to the farm and getting food at a farm stand, which seems ridiculous. What it really points to is that the food, that our transportation system is in as much need of overhaul as our agricultural system <laughs> And if you're bringing stuff, in, if people are going to the farm to pick it up, it's less efficient than, than going to the supermarket. But if the farmer delivers it to town for a CSA drop-off or to a farmer's market that people can walk to or bike to or ride a bus to, then that's much better. So it's really only... the the ridiculousness of the individual car that makes the local food system worse and we can do a much better job and many of our local food systems do a better job.
0: And then uh, you also mentioned at the beginning about perennials versus annuals. Why are perennials so key in this process
2: also? Sure, there's a a couple of reasons. One is just that the biomass of a perennial is holding carbon. So a tree, if you're to weigh out any, any kind of plant. Uh, and dry it out. About half of the weight is carbon, roughly speaking. And uh, in the case of trees, that carbon can be held there uh, for decades or centuries, depending what kind of tree it is. Or and even other perennials, even if they die back to the ground, at least their roots are holding that carbon in place. And perennials also have a very good effect of holding soil in place, of building soil and increasing soil organic matter. So they're not they're holding. Uh, good carbon in their biomass, and also they're really building that uh, biomass, the carbon in the soil organic matter. So they're, they're excellent. Um, and there's many, many, many interesting perennials that we uh, don't take in, enough advantage of right now that really could be making a big contribution to agriculture, even in cold and dry places like where you live. We've really built our, uh, our food system around a very, very small number of crops. Some we've domesticated somewhere on the order of about 100 different species of crops or so, and that's out of maybe 10,000 species that are edible or more. So we've really just scratched the surface. Um, there's lots of advantages to annual crops. Um, the ones we have are already well domesticated. They produce really well. Um, it's not like we would never grow any annuals in the perfect world, but the, many of the places where we grow them today and many of the ways in which we grow them are clearly destructive uh, to the climate, to soils, uh, and so on. So um, integrating, perennializing agriculture as much as we can, even if it's just around the edges of the farm to begin with, uh, really can boost our our carbon sequestration. And in some places in the world, we're ready to fully switch, or they have already fully switched to perennial systems, or they never abandoned their perennials in the first place. Colorado's not really one of those places. Uh, but there's potential, even there, there's very interesting things happening.
0: Yeah, and in the book, you give a lot of examples from places all over the world and a lot of communities in tropic and subtropic areas as well. And you really get into some of the aspects of the eco social justice also. I think there's like one statistic in there that was saying the wealthiest 7% of people are responsible for 50% of emissions. And so, and uh, the people who are creating a lot of the problem are are not directly connected to the consequences. And the people who are feeling the consequences are in more of these subtropic regions where the necessity to, to change the farming patterns is, is more urgent.
2: Yeah, it's a funny combination of, of um, sort of the political economic system and physics and biology. So most of the, most of, the problem of climate change is caused by wealthy countries and wealthy individuals within all countries, because higher levels of consumption typically means higher levels of emission. It doesn't have to, but that's how it works today, almost exclusively. Um, and yet the the impacts are felt much more strongly in tropical regions, and there's two reasons for that. One is just where it's hotter you get you get more intense weather the hotter it is the more intense your weather is going to be um but also uh when you're close to the edge of food security and your infrastructure is poorly built and poorly maintained then you're also much more vulnerable to a disaster um so both of those things are we were seeing very powerfully working together right now like I was in Mexico earlier this spring when there was a huge storm a huge, sort of unprecedented or once a century windstorm, and a million people in the country lost their roof or lost their home because they're basically tin roofs that are held on with a couple of screws. And that wouldn't have happened. The same storm wouldn't have had as devastating an impact here. It certainly would have been devastating, but not not nearly as significant. Um, so that was the case of the uh, the weather combining with this sort of socioeconomic status of folks in Mexico uh, to cause that kind of an impact. And the, the really cool thing about carbon farming is that the practices that have the most impact in terms of the most sequestration per unit area, the most sequestration per acre or per hectare, are currently limited to the tropics. So it provides a perfect opportunity for wealthy countries to pay their carbon debt by helping to uh, finance the scaling up of these practices in the tropics that simultaneously that are mitigating climate change, that are also helping to stabilize slopes and address other issues in these places, and particularly climate change adaptation, which is how do you farm in the new world we've created. Um, It turns out that most of these agroforestry practices, agroecological practices that sequester carbon, are also ideal for adapting to climate change. They're better at handling flood and drought and storms and that kind of thing. So carbon farming happens to be a really good way to look at climate, to address climate justice uh, and carbon debt. And some of that is really just an accident of history, but we're very happy to have it.
0: For folks, individuals, I guess maybe it sounds like the biggest impact we can have is... Uh, supporting and investing in some of these, these subtrap- tra- tra- subtropic um, farms. but is there anything else people can do in their own gardens or just in their own communities to really um, practice some of these, these techniques?
2: Sure, yeah, there's a whole I actually have a whole chapter in the book of like what you can do if you're in X, Y or a Z. So, so as, a, as a gardener, we can grow more of our own food in any way of any kind. If it's in your backyard, it's going to have a really, really good carbon footprint. Um, And if you're using so much, the better if you're using practices that increase organic matter like composting and cover cropping. And so much, the better if you're incorporating more and more perennials like fruit trees. And um, you all have a few nuts you could grow out there like hazelnuts and yellow horns and stuff. Um, Perennial native vegetation, all this kind of stuff is going to be helpful in the in the garden. Um, and, um, in terms of carbon farming in particular, well we can support the farmers around us who are doing this kind of stuff by buying stuff from them or promoting them or whatever. Um, I think it's interesting to look at things like working with some of the local governments on different kinds of, um, policies on a regional or, or municipal or state basis that might be able to, um, be more progressive, like the USDA has a natural resource conservation service, and they provide money for farmers to help implement certain practices, many of which sequester really substantial carbon. But each state gets to pick which ones they want to use of that national palette, and mostly they're not choosing to promote and pay for the ones that sequester the most carbon, which are these agroforestry practices where trees are integrated on the farm. So that's actually a change we could make at the county level or at the state. Edible landscaping and water harvesting in Colorado is pretty key, really. Um, Water harvesting alone, rainwater harvesting alone sequesters about one ton per hectare per year, which makes it kind of at that low level. And then when you add perennials in, you can start to really substantially increase the level of carbon sequestration. and folks have found in Colorado that with with enough rainwater harvesting and maybe use of gray water, you can actually grow stuff that would grow out here in the in the east without extra irrigation, just by sort of handling using that wastewater, utilizing, utilizing that wastewater. So,
0: well, and luckily now we can collect water in a barrel <laughs> and use it. In well, our congratulations! i uh,
2: All marvelous <laughs> Marvelous step in the right direction it is. It's a little silly, but
0: we'll we'll take it, right? Well, Eric, I think especially with all the data and information that you put together in this book, people can be really proactive and prepared when they come to their local governments to really make an argument, I think, to implement a lot of new practices and to help incentivize these these new, new ways of farming. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today and telling us about your book. Great.
2: Well, thanks. I, I worked hard on it to make it something we could use for making those kind of arguments. And I also worked hard to put lots of things in for cold, dry climate. You all are represented in there for sure.
1: And thanks to Kendra Kruger for that wonderful interview about carbon farming. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. More than eighty percent of the world lives under light polluted skies that are so extensive it keeps one third of all the people on Earth from even seeing the Milky Way at night. That's according to an updated light pollution atlas. The atlas gives a baseline for comparing increases in future and future increases or decreases in global light pollution. Scientists also hope the Atlas will help us in the study of the potential health and ecological consequences of light pollution. Here to tell us more is Chris Elvidge. Chris is a scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder and a contributor to the New World Atlas of Artificial Night Sky Brightness. Welcome to How on Earth, Chris.
3: Yeah, thank you.
1: And thank you for joining us. And, you know, let's start with telling a little bit about what you do at the National Center for Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where if anybody's close to a computer and wants to bring up the Earth at night, that beautiful image of where the electrification of the Earth is, you help that happen.
3: Uh, sure. Uh, my team um, got started in 1994 developing the algorithms to make these products using data collected by meteorological satellites that have a uh, an ability to... Um, see lights present at the earth's surface and um, in 2012 we got we began to get data from a much better instrument and so it was time to make a uh, a night sky map from it.
1: Well and here we have I'm, I have it on my computer here just looking at it it's so amazing to see that the earth at night the light that's going up into space is huge from the United States, especially the East Coast, and also from Europe, the the part of Europe that faces the pond, the Atlantic. Um, Japan, Taiwan, those are huge places of light. It's kind of beautiful, but it leads to a a problem. And let's take this other map now that's been created by CU Boulder, which is the new world of light pollution. You can find that at series.colorado.edu under Artificial Sky. Let's look at the United States here, Chris, how your data from the Earth at Night Project has been used to look and see what kind of light pollution is happening. Now what's the difference, first of all, between the light that goes up into the space and the light that bars us from seeing the
3: stars? Okay, so what the satellite measures is the light that's escaping to space and the artificial sky brightness or light pollution is the light that's coming out of the out of the atmosphere back down towards the earth and that's through a scattering process
1: so it's the light that bounces off of buildings off of clouds
3: it's it's bouncing off of the molecules in the air and also the particles in the air
1: so it bounces off a lot of things but the bottom line is it makes the sky less dark so we don't get to see the stars.
3: That's right. When the sky becomes uh, brighter than the stars, then you lose the visibility of those stars.
1: Okay, I'm looking at the map right now of artificial light and its impact and seeing that the east coast of the United States doesn't get to see the Milky Way from the look of this map. Not much. And the same is true for Los Angeles, a little bit of San Francisco, but here in Colorado, we're sort of okay unless you're in Denver, is what it looks like from this map.
3: Uh, that's right. And so the, the Front Range area has quite a bit of light pollution. But there are a lot of parts of Colorado that uh, have uh, very good viewing conditions of uh, of the stars.
1: Is it just because it's us, or do some cities and, and towns have ordinances that make it better for the night sky because of how they bounce their lights down instead of up?
3: Um, yeah, there are some places like that. Flagstaff, Arizona, has... Um, perhaps uh, some of the best ordinances to protect the night sky. Um, But I would say here in the Front Range, I I see a lot of new light fixtures that are designed to prevent the light from going straight up into the sky. They're called full cutoff uh, fixtures.
1: Do you ever walk around in the neighborhood where you live, Chris, and just kind of go, oh, that's a good light fixture for the sake of the stars? Yeah, I do. And and when you look at them, you're able to look up and see the stars.
3: Uh, not many, and uh, so um, uh, the whole Front Range area. Even though we've we've done some improvements, there's still uh, pretty heavy light pollution here.
1: Now I'm looking at this map of the artificial light pollution. Is one of the reasons that Colorado is luckier than that terribly bright East Coast is that there just aren't as many people in Colorado.
3: Exactly. And uh, the uh, population is um, uh, heavily concentrated into the Front Range area. And so uh, much of the state is relatively sparsely populated with small towns that uh, don't produce large quantities of light pollution.
1: So part of it's just luck of not being in a very populated area. But for people here in Denver and Boulder, there are light ordinances to have the lights look down so that we can see more stars. Is this just aesthetic or are there some health effects if we don't get to see the stars at night?
3: Well, um, the atmospheric scattering is skewed towards the blue end of the spectrum. And so that's why when you walk out during the day and look up at the sky, you see a blue sky, that's scattered sunlight. Mm -hmm. And the same process um, occurs at night as well when we have our lights, light fixtures and our lit areas. And that light goes up into the sky, and it bounces around, and and some part of it comes back down towards the Earth, and it it is skewed towards the blue end of the spectrum. And our our eyes have a receptor that uh, is triggered by that blue light, and um, that triggering causes daytime activity patterns. And so it doesn't matter what source the exposure is coming from. It could be indoors or it could be outdoors, but uh, there are um, uh, some studies that indicate there are are human health impacts associated with that.
1: Oh, so it can mess up our circadian rhythms. Uh It can mess up our ability of hormones to produce things like melatonin and be tuned to the right time of day to sleep, Mm -hmm. all of that because of light pollution.
3: That's right. Things like sleep deprivation can be... um, um, uh, Uh, are linked to uh, exposure to light at night.
1: Could it be that animals and plants are also affected if there's too much light pollution at night?
3: Uh, Yes, and uh, there is is actually a scientific community that studies those effects, and our new global map is going to be uh, a very uh, important uh, data set for their studies.
1: Oh, that's right, because now scientists who are studying the effects of light pollution can look at this map that you've created that shows where the light pollution is worst, and they can both see if those places people don't sleep as much or what happens in 10 years if the light pollution goes down or if it goes up. Do you think there's a chance that some parts of the world the light pollution will actually go down?
3: Uh, I I think that in some areas it will go down, but uh, I think the the overall trend is that uh, uh, there's urban expansion um, and... Anytime you expand the infrastructure, whether it's residential or commercial or industrial, we expand the, the uh, amount of the land surface that has lighting present at night.
1: Well, thank you for joining us and being here to help speak for the stars.
3: Okay. I'm glad to do it. Thank you.
1: I'm Shelly Schlender. We've been speaking with Chris Elvidge, who's a scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder and a contributor to the New World Atlas of Artificial Light, Um, Sky Brightness, about the rising level of light pollution, and you'll be able to link to these maps on our website.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Kendra Krueger.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Mira and Air.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter